Cherokee Nation citizen Joshua Wheeler grew up in Muldrow, Oklahoma, the eldest of five siblings. He went on to join the Army, became an Army Ranger, was a veteran of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and a member of the Army's secretive counterterrorism unit, Delta Force. On October 22, 2015, Delta Force carried out a raid on a militant-run prison in Iraq. The raid freed 70 prisoners who officials say would have been executed the next day. Wheeler was killed by small arms fire. We now know the identity of the American soldier killed in Iraq this week, the first to fall in battle there in four years and the first ever to be killed in direct combat with ISIS. Joshua Wheeler, the elite Delta Force Master Sergeant, sacrificed his life to save others. A leader in the war on terror, Wheeler was also a leader on the home front. The husband, father, and son from Roland, Oklahoma was known for being especially giving and for putting others' needs before his own. During his 20 years in the Army, Wheeler was deployed at least 17 times and was the recipient of 11 Bronze Stars, four of them for valor. Posthumously, the U.S. Armed Forces awarded him with the Purple Heart and the Silver Star, and the Cherokee Nation awarded him with the Medal of Patriotism. Sergeant Wheeler's family says he was always proud of his Cherokee heritage. The medal was presented to his grandparents and brother, Zach, in July of 2016. Welcome to the Global Recon Podcast. I'm your host, John Hendricks. Tim Kozak, my co-host, is on with me from the Veterans Project. And we have a special guest back on the show is uh, Dave Nielsen. Uh, some of you guys might remember Dave uh, from a, a HBO documentary called War Dog. Uh, Dave, how's it going, brother? Good, good, John. Tim, good to be here with you. Hey, thanks for coming on, Dave. Um, again, I know we talked a little bit before, but before the show, but... What a powerful documentary. Seriously, uh, I'm not ashamed to admit I shed some tears for sure. So super powerful. <laughs> I can I think we can all admit in this uh, circle that there were some tears shed. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I was telling people to watch it. And like part of my recommendation was to um, keep a box of tissues nearby. Yeah. In fact, John did say yeah. that to me. I right think I said away. that to you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You did, did. You yeah. texted me. You were like. <laughs> Hey, bro, make sure you got the Kleenex. And I was like, dude, I don't need Kleenex. And then like 30 <laughs> seconds in, I was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. man. Powerful no, it's, story, It's good man. to hear. And, and so important that we honor these dogs as well. I mean, because they really are, you know, a part of that soldiering force. We need them. And I just was, oh, I just admired um, the courage and, and the way that these, the, the, the hard, you know, how hard this training is that they go through in order to get into the special operations world as well, where I think it was like 1% of the working dogs make it into the special operations world. I mean, Pepper was truly an amazing dog. Wow. She was, and she was the first female. There've been more since, but you know, and I, there was a dog once, a male that got out in the kennels and tried to give her the business, and she backed his butt right up into his own kennel and gave him all he wanted and then some. You know, she was just a beast when she needed to be. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. So, Dave, you didn't do the uh, the dog handling for very long, did you? I didn't. I did it for two years. I got to the unit in '04 from. 175 and i had seen that at the we went to afghanistan and iraq when i or I, I did with the with first range of battalion 
and I'd seen, you know, people using dogs in a different way. It wasn't just like, you know, search this car and the old German shepherd who's tired. And, you know, it wasn't that it was like, they were using dogs in a, in a way that I didn't even understand, but it was cool. And not just that, but like, who doesn't want to have a dog with them when you're deployed and climbing the walls anyway. So I had sort of just earmarked that as something I might like to do, got to the unit in 04 and, um, I did that for a couple of years first and, um, Pepper died sort of right when I was transitioning out. So, um, that's when I went and just, uh, got on a normal team. And when you, but it was hard, hard, hard work, physically hard, hardest job I've ever had. Doing the dog stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's amazing. I don't think, you know, I don't, I don't think many people realize all that goes into it. I mean, I'm sure they think of obviously the dog side of it a little bit as far as the training, but, um, you know, can you, can you speak to that a little bit as far as how, why that was so tough on the handlers? Sure. I mean, it, to start out, it's kind of a time thing. You've got to get up earlier and later to take care of the animal, which is not a difficulty. It's just a thing. And then just physically. So, you're out patrolling, you've got everything, you know, you've got your weapon up and your everything that you have anyways, but now you've got this dog on your hip pulling on one side of you and um, it just wears your body down over time and getting on and off a helo, that's an ordeal every time. Like somebody is going to face plant me or the dog every time for sure. <laughs> um and then just, you know, they're excited and they get frustrated. They're just, it's like a six-year-old, you know, who can fight. It's like, yeah. um, they're just like us, though. They get excited and they get frustrated and they let you know it. And um, it's just this balancing thing. It was very tiring, but also rewarding. So when wow. you um when you first went into combat, at, you know, as a ranger, were rangers deploying with dogs at that point or was it just a unit well from what from what you saw no yeah regiment didn't have a canine program yet at that point and that was in oh well see i was i started in the 80, 80s definitely nothing then um got out for 10 years and then went back in in oh one or oh two back to the rangers and then you know no canine program i think they got it right after i left in oh four so when you um when you first joined in the eighties, you, you saw your first you had your first experience with combat in the eighties, right? That's right. In December eighty nine we jumped into Panama. I was a very frightened E two private with about three or four months in battalion. <laughs> <laughs> wow. But did it, yeah. So how was, was that for you? Like, you know, having a combat jump, uh I believe up to that point it hadn't been done for a very long time, right? Well, Grenada in 83, so six years before that, it seemed like forever, you know, it seemed like a long time back then. <laughs> um, it was, uh, gosh, it was indescribable. I mean, I was ni just turned 19 years old and um, a bunch of the privates quit that had made it to battalion and those of us that didn't, pretty much I had to talk my way onto the plane. I just had a really good leader back then. We're still buddies. And, um, he, I talked my way on and I went and 
I'm glad it's like I needed to do that for some reason. And, uh, that was so difficult, but then, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of hits and missions later, it was not difficult to the point where I'm not feeling anything. And that's a problem too, you know, where I'm going with that. Um, like we let it take our lives over and then I got no life and the documentary with pepper and everything was, was the beginning of me starting to get better and get my life back. And, um, it all kind of coincided with me, uh, going to the VA and, uh, pretty much being close to the end, honestly. <laughs> um, and I met with this counselor before the documentary even was on the map and she, by chance, by chance, I mean, this is, this is God to me, but, um, we, we talked about the pepper story over and over and over and over because that's where I traced my PTSD to was like when she died that early morning in February of 06, um, that's when everything stopped for me. And, uh, so we started there and then about a year later after me working with her on that story, the movie came and then it was like, wow, I could talk about it because I just spent a year talking about it with the VA counselor. So it was, it was pretty cool how it all happened. And when, when the movie came out, that was the first time you talked about it publicly, right? Well, well like I on a, on a, like a larger so. scale, I guess. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And probably at all. Yeah, it was. And, um, and it was also the first time I watched that uh, bird's eye feed in the movie. I, you could see me at the end looking at it. I had it in my possession. I just didn't want to watch it. I didn't. And I didn't. And then the, the t- uh, director and the producer and all that, you know, earned my trust. And um, they did a good job. So I watched it and it it wrecked me. Like, um, obviously, but... uh. I mean, we all, each of the three stories are kind of different in a way. And John Dixon, the middle guy, middle story, he's coming to town next month, I think. Um, the movie helped us all in different ways. Um, it's been a real blessing. I've got to say, when watching that movie, Dave, um, that, that story, first of all, for any of the listeners that haven't watched War Dogs, watch that movie is absolutely incredible um but i've got to say john i don't think i've ever been more mad at a human being than i was after i watched that with that sheriff oh my god yeah their their facebook page got got like ripped to shreds oh i Um, went on there i went on there to look around and maybe comment but it wouldn't let me comment (laughs) and then i just read the comments and i was like oh he already got destroyed so yeah that was that was brutal but well-deserved brutality from my standpoint man oh it made me angry it was is John, is John, yeah. do you know if John's still struggling with that, Dave? If he's, you know, if he's having a hard time with that, that was John, right? Dixon that you're talking about. Yep. Yeah. That's John. He, he is, but not, um, like he was before then, uh, leading up to Mika died of old age, like weeks before the movie came out. Mm, so, it, you know, and we were hoping the director, Deb Scranton was, 
hoping that he would be able to see her, of course, but she died and that, you know, but, um, so he, but he really came to life at the, the movie. Everybody did. It just, the, I guess being heard, you know, like did a lot for John and his family and I don't want to speak for him, but I can say what I saw around him. Um, you know, it definitely helped him and had a positive effect on him just to, to be heard and be, have people say like, Hey man, that was wrong. And just acknowledge it. You know, that was a huge deal for he and myself and everybody. And John, can you get, uh, Dave, can you kind of describe John's situation like with that? Because I know some people probably haven't watched War dogs that are listening. I mean, of course I would hope they do before they watch this, but if they don't kind of what happened with that a little bit, just generally. Sure. John's story. He was a handler with a dog named Mika, who was a sweet little Belgian male. He was in Afghanistan, I believe. Um, I was at the unit at this point, but, um, he, he, uh, and Mika were both shot. I think John, I think Mika was shot too, but yeah, I think, I think she was injured. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So they, they were split up and then, you know, and hate to, hate to, uh, kind of gnash my teeth at the Ranger regiment, but I will anyways. They, uh, <laughs> my gosh, I walked from, I walked 700 miles against the black beret. I guess I can say something about this. They split up John and, um, Mika, John went to Germany, Mika got sent home. And then without John ever getting to see her again, the dog went to, um, a sheriff's department, which is okay. And normal. Like we do that sometimes when a dog is, you know, needs to go work somewhere else. That's a thing that happens, but John should have had his, uh, his say in that. And he didn't, mm. um, that was, that was just all kinds of wrong. So then John's now he's trying to recoup visit this dog, you know, in six states away from him and living with the family, you know, and um at that point it was just obviously in the hands of somebody who has got a lot to learn about life, but uh we'll pray for him. That Paul right. Leslie I think his name is and Yes. Yeah. Um so yeah, it's just devastating. But you know, what that showed me is that it was the same thing with me and Pepper in my situation. Pepper died. We didn't recover her body. What that became for me and what, uh, what I see this as is like, this becomes everything gets tied to this. And I don't, I'm not speaking for John. I'm just speaking for me here, but it all gets balled up into one thing. And I think more than one soldier, you know, has done this and, but it becomes that everything gets tied up in there and, and our lives stop. And that's why people are, are dying like they are. It's a protest, and that's what I think. But uh, I'm getting way in the weeds here. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Can Can you kind of describe that mission for those that haven't seen the, the documentary and what happened with Pepper when when you went out that that evening? Sure. That was in the winter of '06. We were we were in Baghdad. Um, pretty, this was post Saddam capture still, I think we had got Zarqawi. So just kind of run of the mill stuff. Um, we went out this night. It was a huge sort of, um, mission with all 
different types of units uh, interacting. Like the 101st, I, I remember it was the only time I remember working with them, the unit 101st. Rangers, of course, were running BPs. Um, it was just this massive objective. Um, and all I was, me and Pepper were just on a, with the recce team on Little Bird, just looking for squirters. So we went up, we flew over, it was a five minute flight. South Baghdad looked, you know, looked around. It's, I don't know, midnight. Nobody squirted. We flew home, you know, so I'm getting ready to go watch a football game or something. And they're like, whoa, 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 somebody squirted. So we got back, we loaded back on, flew back. We got a, you know, real quick brief and, and landed. And, and that just began this all night freaking search for this guy who, who scored it very smartly and very, uh, obviously it was planned and he had his spot to go. And what's really, really, really hard to explain. I, I don't even know if I'd believe it, if I didn't see it was how thick of nasty jungle type, uh, brush you can get into on the banks of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers mm. in a country, you know, in a desert country. Yes. It's just, you can't move through this stuff. And it's really hard to explain. Was. It's really hard to explain that vegetation unless we are. So we were in Taji, and I don't know if you're yep. familiar with that area, but it was right along the banks of, I believe it was the Tigris, and that stuff was nasty. I mean, just to yeah. back up your point, it was absolutely awful. Yeah, you know, I appreciate the input because it's it, who would expect that, you know, but. This is uh, civilizations that have been around for thousands of years. I mean, these those rivers are mentioned in the book of Genesis. They're ancient. Right. People have been farming them forever. So there's, you know, mounds. You remember walking through the fields, you just, you're tripping all the time because they've been worked for thousands of years. And um, it's just so thick. So Pepper goes after this guy and, and this thick stuff. Um, normally, when the, when a dog goes, it's it's a matter of, a minute or less before you hear the scream and the bite and it's over. And, um, but this was just nothing. And then I heard a pop. I thought she was shot. She didn't come back for about 15 minutes. I thought she had been shot and she came back and she was soaking wet and, and just not right. She had been sort of, I think he had tried to smother her, but she got out. Um, so then we just throw everything at this dude and, uh, the mission's done at this point. I mean, Everybody had cleared their part. Um, it, it was just now, it was just looking for Pepper for the rest of the night. This was a really, really, really bad place. There were Humvee parts. You could see hoods of Humvees from, you know, that had just been IED'd a day or two before U.S. troops killed. We were flying in, we could see that. So it was a bad, bad, bad place. And, um, you know, eventually, I mean, we, we just threw everything, rockets, grenades, machine gun into this brush, but it was down a slope. I slid down the slope once in the mud and it was cold, rainy, muddy that night. And, um, long story longer, basically, uh, after a couple hours, I sent her again because we had him pinpointed. He was just in a hole. I sent her again. She got him out of the hole. Uh, my buddy finally shot and killed the guy who saw that, but we never saw Pepper again. 
so we started to look for her and somebody found her, uh, her strobe light. They didn't know that at the time. They said, I see her, I got her. So, you know, I was starting to feel okay. And it, it turned out to be just her strobe, which had been ripped off of her kit. So obviously she'd been in a fight and looked and looked and looked and, and never found her. And the commander gave, like, I knew we couldn't stay there through the day just because of our exposure and the small size of our unit and other factors. I knew that was going to come and it did. And, uh, you know, I asked for more time. I got more time. I asked for everything. And finally we had to leave. And I just, uh, just remember punching the field with my fist as hard as I could and, and crying and not caring at that point, you know, who thought what about me? Like, you know, I just let it, let it go. And then that's when I, re that's when I just stopped feeling. <laughs> wow. Oh, yeah. and, and on top of that, the, the, um, you know, the mission where, where you lost Pepper, one of your teammates was also killed the night before, right? Or, the, or a couple of nights before that? Yeah. The night before Lance Cornette had been, had been killed on a, um, basically while driving and, and, uh, just doing his job. He was, uh, I forget the corridor and all that, it's, but, or the road, but he was, he got engaged while he was um, doing his thing and, and was killed that night, you know, the night exactly before. So, and he and Pepper were buddies. Like, like he, uh, he and I had gone to selection together. You know, there was a dog in selection that followed us all around. So we, me and Lance had a thing with dogs. We just loved him and laughed at him. And uh, he and Pepper got along great. So he was killed and, you know, Pepper and I went up into the gym that night and, uh, I kicked a heavy bag and she was sad, I think. And, and then the next night we lost Pepper and yeah, it was rough. Wow. I mean, that's a very real trauma and things that people don't think about. I think that's why the individual story is so important. John is, you know, in, in talking to a guy like Dave is like, not very many people think about the individual aspects of trauma and loss and, so, you know, you lost a good friend the night before and then you lose, you know, man's best friend that, that night. I mean, you know, how, how did that affect you, you know, in the days after that? That's a good question, Tim. And I appreciate you saying that about um, it is trauma. And that's, you know, we, we like to think we're so tough that we can and special and, and we are, but not forever. Um, but after that, what happens is, you know, I don't like, here's an example. Some off, we're going to talk somewhere, but I don't know if there's a ranger officer. It doesn't even matter, but somebody, you know, who spent his time in talks and not out on farm fields said something like we were just going on a kill capture in Afghanistan or something. And, he said something, you know, well, anybody can go in there and, and kill cavemen. And it's like, well, like saying it was easy. And I'm like, sir, how many cavemen have you killed? You know, wow, probably yeah. none. I'm guessing. I, 
I didn't actually say this. I, you know, I'm, I'm the kind of guy that thinks about it 10 minutes later and that's like, yeah. damn, I got my comeback now. But, <laughs> that's me too. That's okay. That happens to me all yeah. the time. <laughs> but that's, that's the gist of it. And then, so that develops into this freaking cloud that follows me around my whole life. And the next thing I know, I'm divorced three times. And my brother's hung himself, um, you know, just, and, and nothing affects me, I think, but I'm heading toward my death pretty much if I don't take action. And that's kind of what Pepper did for me is provide me the outlet to talk about, you know, to this counselor at the VA where I checked myself into at three in the morning in 2014, like, is it, I'm giving it my last chance here or, or it's done. Cause, uh, you know, it, 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 it'll take you if you don't take yourself back. Yeah. Wow. So after 06, the 06 deployment, um, you had uh, several more deployments to Iraq, right? Yes, I came back, and then I had two or three more um, just on a sniper recce team in the unit. Those were all, um, I was about to say great, but they were, um, my team just, I had a really solid team none of us were killed um everybody was wounded <laughs> it's so funny how we look back and make light of it oh it's great everybody was wounded except me um <laughs> no, when, I went, when i stepped out to do arabic um it's like everybody got shot except me i uh so i'm in a classroom and i and uh i get word that my whole team was shot and fragged and none of them died but Sorry, John. Yeah, I did a few more deployments. And then in, my last one was in 2009. And uh, that was my ninth rotation, not counting plain clothes stuff. But, um, and that's when I just knew that it was when I went into language. Like, I couldn't do it anymore. So did you? I could have, but I, I didn't want to be like Brett Favre, you know, like out there <laughs> taking, up, <laughs> taking up space where there's younger, bigger stronger better guys than me i like the brett Favre comparison guys are like hey uh dave so you gonna quit at some point or yeah. well i mean yeah. you're great you're great don't get us wrong but i mean if you want to step away you can you know yeah <laughs> kind of one of those things i get it yeah yeah that's funny um so were you and jeff teagues like did you guys ever deploy together or no well, let me think. He, we were in different, different uh, squadrons. He, we went through OTC together, and he, he and I were in the Ranger Battalion back in the '80s together. Didn't know it. He was in uh, A Company One Seven Five. I was in B, and then we were different. So I don't, I don't think that we ever deployed together. But um, we were, went through OTC together, and definitely are of the same cloth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so the other day um i was listening to a podcast a joe rogan podcast it's like one of the more popular ones that people listen to especially in the u.s and um he had this guest on and it's funny because a, a, a co-worker of mine he's a good friend of mine he's like one of these like um kind of conspiracy theory guys like not he doesn't believe in every single one but he there's a couple that he'll talk about like and you know so 
he kind of looks to like alternative news sources and he tells me about this woman and her name is Abby Martin. So I follow her on Instagram and I, and, and then I subscribe to her on YouTube, but I don't think I ever actually looked at any of her stuff. So she does this kind of investigative journalism. She'll go to different places in the world, hotspots, if you can call it, and does this sort of reporting from there. <clears throat> so she was on Joe Rogan, so I'm listening. She was talking about she had gone to Palestine and the West Bank and talking about how horrible the Israelis are to people. And and she's saying all these things, and I'm just like, you're, you know, she's completely keeping out the fact that Hamas and some of these other groups, you know, they launch attacks on Israel and, and things like that. So then I, I listened to another one she did with Joe Rogan, and she was talking about the Iraq war. And I think that entire podcast just kind of um, made it so clear to me that people talking about some of these topics, they don't understand any of the contextual information, you know? I think she was trying to say the U.S. killed like 2 million people in Iraq or something like that. And and I can tell from when, when people make the kind of statements that she made, they just don't really understand how the conflict progressed in Iraq. And and you had mentioned al-Zakari earlier. He was really a key mm -hmm. figure from kind of what made Iraq completely fall into chaos. Can we talk about a little bit of like the... the um, or, or maybe you, I, I'm sure you were aware of it, but the uh, like the civil war that was taking place in Iraq while you guys were over there. Yeah, and you know, weapons of mass destruction, whatever you know, oil. It's just to me, it's laughable that first of all, uh, I'm in school. I'm an online student. I was, I got told by a 19 year old authoritative teenager last month, like all about war, and I. And I told her, you know, she's a historian. I'm like, would you like to know how we got Ambassador Stevens' body back in Afghanistan? You're a historian. I'm giving you the opportunity. She didn't want to know the real truth. But she just wanted to tell me what, you know, why wars start. And so it's, you know, Iraq's no different from any other war in history. They start, they happen. It's humans. And so all that to me doesn't even matter. And when... Dave, I just want to stop you right there. I, I find it hilarious in that academia setting, because I was in it through my master's program, too, how, like, somehow mm -hmm. being a subject matter expert and actually having gone over there, that <laughs> that's then reduced to some lesser understanding because of the context of you deploying there in terms of warfare. So... Right. Sitting in a classroom, you'll have people sit and stare you in the face. And I'm sure it's even more frustrating for you because of the type of unit you were in. But I remember people staring yeah. at me in the face and telling me my understanding of Iraq was skewed because I went over there as an aggressor. <laughs> right? I mean, unbelievable. <laughs> yeah. Like, really stuff that literally was like, I'm about to become an aggressor real quick here <laughs> and throw you through this wall. It, but I can't do that. Because it's I'm amazing. in my master's program. I mean, it's literally amazing. like this, this academic, I mean, we're, and also John, you know, you think you're talking to a guy here who's one of the most 
cerebral. You have to be at such a high level to perform, to be in this unit. I mean, you know, you're talking about the all-stars of the military world, you know, not to reduce it to sport, but, you know, and then you're sitting there talking to a 19-year-old who is trying to tell you about what the whole sociopolitical atmosphere over there is when you can effectively with your unit run a country by yourselves like how crazy (laughs) is that i I mean i I just can't understand that right i mean crazy like full circle to the point where i realize that i'm the crazy one trying to enlighten her that's not my job right She she doesn't want that what, what is wrong with me that I'm trying to do this still at 48 years old, a 19 year old, listen to me. You little <laughs> bitch. Like, and and I'm, I didn't say that I'm as polite as I can be, but like to what, you know, and then I talked to my wife about it for three days. Like, she's like, are you still upset about that? I'm like, yes, but you know, like <laughs> then I'm letting it rent space in my head. But I say it to him, like, it's just, yeah. I mean, it's, it's laughable. It's cryable. It's, it's, I think I just think it's always been this way. Yeah, and, and I think the sorry, John. No, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. There. No, I was go just ahead, gonna go say I think that one of the things that really bugs me is I don't have a problem, man. You gotta understand I'm a photographer, so I've been in the art space and the left and the right, and there's you know, it's mostly left and my side of art. You know, there's a lot of people on the left. I'm perfectly fine with that, man. Everybody can have their opinions. But listen, yeah. if I'm going to talk about cameras. I'm not going up to Ansel Adams, rest in peace. He's been dead a long time, but I'm not going up to Ansel Adams and saying, Hey Ansel, well, you're understanding, you know, you might've been out there shooting with the camera a lot, but you don't really understand it. Like I do, because I've been reading a lot of books and let me tell you, yeah. I can tell you how to shoot a photo, you know, how to, how to, you know, take a photograph. Like you, it's so crazy to come into someone's circle. I don't have a problem with different viewpoints. I think it's beautiful if you can share it in a setting where you can be diplomatic and have discussions. But when you're trying to tell a subject matter expert, Hey, um, I know that I've owned a Nerf gun for a while, but I'm going to teach you how to <laughs> use a 50 cal. Okay. I'm going to teach you about headspace and yeah. timing real quick. <laughs> Let me teach you about that. Okay. <laughs> Like that whole, uh, it's just so ridiculous. It's, and it's so infantile. It just, I'm sorry, I've gone on a rant yeah. here a little bit, but just hearing you speak about that 19 year old in, in that context is just yeah. incredible. It doesn't leave an open discussion. I mean, you can't even have a discussion yeah. with somebody that thinks they have a better understanding than you. Right. And all, I was talking about the American Revolution. And she, the thing is, she and I pretty much lined up politically. She just never got, she was the closed-minded one. And, and I, you know, to be honest and fair, I'm just becoming open-minded. That doesn't mean I agree with the definition of marriage, the new definition of marriage. That doesn't mean what open-minded is. It means I'm willing to listen to somebody. And like you're saying, guys, just, uh, you know, but it's so clear when they're not that way and telling you to be that way that I'm just delightfully unplugged from all that for the most part, except for that experience. But yeah. <laughs> It's, you know, it's interesting. I think people just, like, I I think it's part of it is what people expect the world to be, you know, like, like, let's say the reason the U.S. went to Iraq was for oil, right? If you look at it from a a historical standpoint, 
every major country or empire or you know anything anyone in history who was on top what they did was get resources for their kingdom for their country or whatever so everybody uses oil everything we do in the western world relies on oil uh, in many ways for right. heat for cars so it's like looking at it from a pragmatic perspective what exactly is wrong with with getting those resources that that your family right. lives off of that my family lives off of now you, you can say can break it down and go further into it I think there were things that that could have been done better as far as the management of of Iraq and things like that. But that's just another conversation. All right. And then kind of going back to my original point where she was talking about the U.S. killed two million people there. It's like there was a civil war that took place, and and the guy, um, yeah, Al Zakari, he he's kind of considered the ideological founder of ISIS. Yeah. He his whole aim was to to get a civil war started between Sunni and Shia Muslims, and people don't understand that. There's right. been a civil war within Islam itself for a long time, and people really don't understand that. And what yeah. Iraq turned into was just a continuum of that. Yeah, it makes me embarrassed for my country. Um, it does when I hear things like that and see things like that. And it just, you know, we think we're the, we're the authority on it. And or, you know, or people that want to sort of become like Europe. They've never been to Europe, most of them. They don't know that it sucks <laughs> over there, too, you know? Yeah. <laughs> There's mm -hmm. no utopia. Like, everybody's struggling. Those two million people, it probably would have been four million if we weren't there. Yeah. Exactly. I can't tell you how many hits we did where, where we went out. We're, we're watching somebody. They stop carjack somebody, kidnap somebody while we're watching them. Then we go hit them, release the dudes in the trunk out of their car. And, and so we're, these guys are now in you and they're the confused looks on their faces. Like what just happened? Like we caught somebody who had just captured somebody else, released one of them and kept one of them. And it was just weird stuff like that happened all the time, you know, and, but just read your history. there, historians up there in the world. <laughs> yeah, or don't read your, don't read your history. Talk to somebody who was who was at a place like Benghazi, who you know, uh, or, not me, my good friends, but um, things like that. You know, talk to some veterans for God's sake. Doesn't this kind of speak to the overall narrative a little bit, Dave? Like this, the way the world is now with this voyeurism, like where we're just kind of sitting back and watching and keyboard trolling others you know where we're just sitting back and making comments on things we don't really understand that well like i mean i i was you know literally reading the comment section and love him or hate him but i don't know if you saw like david goggins post from yesterday john that like everybody was sharing but um you know joe rogan was sharing it and then john jones bones jones shared it it was just talking about inspiration and how people you need to not listen to your detractors. Right. And on that post, when Joe Rogan shared it, there were like 100,000 detractors talking about David Goggins sucking. You know, I was like, my gosh, like the point that the guy is making and literally he's got people on the post talking trash about him. Like, 
oh, you talk like yeah. you're trying to inspire, but you go, you, you're nothing like, you know, like talking, just talking trash about him. I was like, I mean, I just think like that's the overall narrative, right? Like speaking, a bunch of spe- people speaking out of turn on things that they aren't really yeah. subject matter experts about at all. When you've got one that we're talking to right now, a guy who has done a ton of direct action and had a ton of, you know, experience in that country and yet you've got 19 year olds telling you what you know what you don't know obviously that's it <laughs> but we need each other in a way like especially the, the detractors i mean that's right and like i was pretty into ufc for a while i've kind of packed off now but um i mean i still watch she was winning and and losing and all that and i love john jones and Askren and all them, but um, I don't know, man. It's uh, I think we're in horrible, horrible shape, but no worse than we've ever been at any other time in history. I think, you know, ha- a big ha- simulation. Have <laughs> you ever done any any um, mixed martial arts, like as part of your uh, part of your job, Dave? <laughs> yeah, we. My claim to fame is I I got choked out by Horse Gracie. Um, <laughs> he grabbed me as a he's he's he would come to the unit every six months and um you know just teach us things and uh he was he just pointed at me once he's like come here i want to show everybody something i'm like oh boy and he just he get, he's like this i forget what he called it but it's some like watch i'm just gonna take my you know in his accent i can't do it but i'm gonna put my forearm on his whole side of his neck and his face do you see how his face is contorted in pain here <laughs> that's me I'm like, oh. he's like he's ready to tap and i'm like yeah i am <laughs> that's called a pain choke or something but yeah that was but i never man i never did anything with it i wasn't good or anything i like stand up not background um but we also had my sniper team took randy couture and his wife out um to shoot a couple t- or one time and uh nice Liddell and Diego Sanchez when they were making their rounds. It was pretty cool. Randy is awesome. He's such a cool guy, man. I really I yeah. really like him a lot. He's a good guy. I got choked out by a Kennedy, by Tim Kennedy, and that was like <laughs> not a very pleasant experience. Was that at Shot Show recently or no? No, that was when I was covering him for the Veterans Project. Okay, okay. I was I was like, Tim, I want you to choke me out. And he was like, You're you're pretty dumb, but okay. And uh <laughs> And I let him do it twice, but yeah, it's like the most helpless feeling. It just kind of felt like a rag doll. When somebody has that level of like of martial arts understanding, it's just like, dude, like it's such a hopeless feeling to like know there's yeah. nothing I could do to this guy to kill them. Like, there's no way I could no. get out of a situation. No way. Like, no. It's horrible. No. A gunfight's my only hope. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I'm not winning a gunfight against Tim Kennedy, you know. Somebody else could, but uh, maybe, possibly, but not me. <laughs> so I would get taken. I have no hope. I just lay down and be like, "All right, Tim, take me." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it. funny. Um, I guess Jeff Teague is into jujitsu. I, I don't know if he does like some of the other stuff, but um, uh, when when I met up with him here in New York, you know, we're at the World Trade Center in the offices of um. Uh, uh, Wally One O, which you which you know, and uh, yeah, and it's like you know everybody's in suits, and and he's giving this briefing on what the Guardian Group does and and how they uh, counter the crime of child sex trafficking here in the U.S. And so it's really um, 
the way he presented it and uh, and one of his colleagues from the Guardian Group, they, they did a good job, but it's really a, a serious topic, you know, and, and um, yeah. so I was sitting nearest to where he was on like on the table. So in, in the room is a bunch of um, guys from the unit, ex-unit guys and, and some other government people and then like a bunch of Wall Street dudes. And mm. he's giving this serious presentation and, you know, they're, they're trying to help get funds for, for what they're doing. And he keeps like slapping my shoulder, like just kind of using me in his ex- <laughs> examples of like, oh, you know, a pimp from New York. And then he slaps me on my shoulder and he, you know, whatever. <laughs> so he's just kind of doing that. I'm like, all right. And then at some point he kind of stands behind me and he's like, yeah, and we're going to put a vice grip on him. And then he like puts me into a chokehold in front of all these people. I'm like, yo, Jeff, what are you doing? <laughs> um, Man. Yeah, it, it was kind of a, a funny moment. I wish there was like a, a video of that. But um, so that, so that, but him. He... no, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. I knew you were going to lead to him doing something like that. It's like, you know, we, gosh, we would go to uh, embassies and, and brief, you know, ambassadors and all that were trained for that kind of stuff. And you get a little nervous, like when you're used to CQB's your job and okay, put the suit on now. And, and Jeff would just always have just at the right time, like something, you know, really stupid to say to make you spit your soda out in front of the ambassador. And that's awesome. What was your what was your favorite part about that about that job, Dave? I mean, I know you did a lot of different things probably within the unit, but what what was your favorite part of being a part of that a part of that team? Oh, uh, let me think about that one. Um, maybe maybe it's it's funny. It changes as I get older, but. Um, looking back now, I can see that it was validating for myself, you know, like I, at the time I needed to, to go through that and, and accomplish all that. And that was the good part, knowing that I could do it then. But I guess, you know, looking at everybody involved there and we're so uh, happy to be able to say that at the unit, you could, you could go, you know, leave hundred dollar bills on your desk and go away for four months and come back and they'll still be there. Um, people leave their car windows open and it's, uh, it's just, it's like that. And it gives you hope. It, you know, it, sometimes we have these horrible things that or a bunch of people die, um, or just, you know, some BS come down from the army, like whatever it is. But, uh, you know, somebody, Kyle Lamb, I think said, well, it's still the best place in the world to work. And it was because of the people. And so it gave me hope in people, um, you know, from, from all over the country. Um, it's support and operator alike. Like there's no line there to me, as long as we know our differences, like, you know, it's not a power thing. It's just, a um, respect and it's, it's there, but, uh, support operator, just equally good people. I mean, even for the support guys, a lot of the supporters, I guess, depending on what it is, but it's very specialized, right? Yeah, my wife, uh, she was there as long as I was, uh, over nine years. She was the vet tech at the unit. Her name's Laura Miller. Um, So she, I mean, you know, she 
was uh, Pepper's vet tech, and uh, that's how we met. <laughs> wow. And, yeah, she had to interview, and her, her boss in the big army told her not to bother because she's a female. They're not going to hire her. And she, you know, she just had the heart. It's all about heart. It's all about developing our hearts and at the unit and then life and uh, everybody there is just, uh, and I think everybody for the most part in the world has that um, capability. We just got to find out how to bring it out. Getting all kumbaya on you guys. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love those non-traditional answers though, because you know, you think when you ask a guy like that, you're like, oh, killing guys. That was my favorite part. You know, being in the middle of the shit at 2 a.m. and not knowing which way's up and, you know, but it's like, it's, it's, it's really genuine and it's awesome to hear that, you know, that's your favorite part of it. Those relationships are so important, man. And, and I think that, you know, what you spoke to about being able to leave your windows open, like, I mean, you know, trust, I mean, trust within the team environment and going to war together. That's everything, right? Like that relationship yeah. has to be everything. Right. Yeah. And I mean, five, seven years ago, it was getting together with my old teammate, you know, the guy that's built like a cave troll and builds liquid cooled computers on the side like <laughs> you know just like what like they make people like that i don't it's just <laughs> insane how big and strong eric eckhart my teammate he's still he's a he's getting ready to retire but just like and smart way smarter than me and it's like i didn't know there were even people like this but you know it used to be getting together with him and talking about our kills and walking down the street, you know, cross covering and just how we could look, how we could speak to each other with our eyes pretty much, you know, with our nods and just, just the little look in the eye. He knew that I meant this and we would do that. And just, you know, year after year, after year, after rotation. And that's what it was. That was my favorite part seven, eight years ago. Now it's, you know, I'm a theology student, biblical studies, and that's my thing now. And, that's so really cool. Wow. It's got to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a little bit. So you're studying biblical studies. Where at? Uh, Regent University is in Virginia Beach. I'm in. I'm still in North Carolina, so I do it online. But it's just been like uh, really cool for me. Yeah, that's awesome. I actually went to uh, Southwestern Assemblies of God University. And Regent is like one of our partner schools that a lot of like our master's oh. program. people went to they ended up going i went to ut dallas for my master's but a a lot of the communications and masters in divinity uh students kind of went off to region afterwards so i'm very familiar we had a few professors come speak to us you know from there so i'm very familiar with that school oh it's super cool to hear thanks yeah and uh yeah i'm going into my mdiv after i graduate i'm a senior now next year i'll do my mdiv and i'm 100 percent combat related disabled so voc re- rehab is paying for it all and, and then some and not that I recommend that path to anybody but it sure worked out for me <laughs> yeah so are we going to be referring to you as Pastor Dave soon or what? what's the path wh- wh- where's your path no, leading you into that I purposely not I, that's not I mean if if it's like okay I'm direct, you know guided to do that but 
no, that's really not my thing. I, I like to read and write. I love C.S. Lewis. I'd like to write like that one day, but God might also completely probably change everything as I see it. Um, I'm ready for that. So right now I'm just um, loving being a student. Um, and Eric, that teammate I was talking about, the big cave troll, um, he <laughs> he's, getting on, he's going into psychology or something to like help people. And I said, wow, what, look at that. Me and you, Delta three and Delta four, our old call signs were like, we used to go out and slay people. Now we're going, trying to help people. Like, that's just crazy. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You... Both helpful, both helpful in different ways. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Timing is everything. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> you don't want to slay when you're supposed to pray. You know what I'm saying? So. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh man, that was so cheesy. You're gonna have to go ahead and take that one part out, John. Yeah, I got you. <laughs> so, um, doing your, you know, doing the theology stuff, uh, a, a lot of that is pretty much history, right? There's a historical aspect of it, yeah. And um, I'm taking a history class right now, and you know, it's interesting. You know, I. I I should mention the Vietnam guys. I Most of them have died off, but there were some Vietnam Rangers who, about 20 years ago, when I was between, after Panama and Desert Storm and before I went back in, they I was struggling. These guys reeled me in, and they took me out on a boat and forced me to tell my Panama story. You know, after they're telling all these awesome Ranger Vietnam stories, they were my heroes. That's who I read about and wanted to be like in the 80s. They took me in, they, you know, showed me how screwed up they were as people and um, told me about PTSD, told me what's going to happen if I keep, you know, pursuing my uh, desires to, to, you know, be what I wanted to be, that I'll have bad dreams and won't be able to sleep. And it's just like I needed to do it. And they knew that, you know, they went to the World War II vets for the same advice and got the same Stuff. And so I'm just trying to pet, you know, I've got a young kid, a 21 year old, my niece's boyfriend, who's an ROTC and I'm writing him a letter telling him, all right, here's the deal. You know, if you become an officer, here's the thing between enlisted and officers and here's how you can be great or not. So I just pass it on. Yeah. How, how important, you know, I, I think for some of the listeners have kind of heard this from my side a lot, just because the reintegrative aspect is so important in the veterans project to talk a lot to these guys about pre and post, you know, their time in the military. So how, how important though, is that camaraderie in going out and leaving, you know, leaving the unit? How important was it for you to find like-minded people that you could really gel with and did you find that right away or did it take a while for you to find your tribe when i got there or when i left when you left when you left the military it was uh, it it took a while and it's i'm still in the process but i had ets once before i i got out in 92 the first time and completely floundered and flopped and uh so I knew that it was difficult. Um, so this time I, I had, you know, a little bit better of an idea. And But no, it's, it is not easy. And you can have all the programs and money and resources in the world. Um, but if people 
don't uh, want to do it, it's, it's, there's nothing in the world that's going to help them until they want to get better. Um, right. And part of that's the 19-year-old historians who want to tell you about a war that they weren't even <laughs> alive during when you were in. <laughs> I don't get it. I sense some frustration there. <laughs> well, it's like, seriously, my math, this isn't a math class, too. I don't know how it even happened. My teacher, thank God, was a Vietnam veteran. So he and I are, like, emailing on the side. He's like, hey, okay, give it to her, but not so much. And I'm like, <laughs> Professor Nick, man, I'm like... Seriously, I need to tell this girl that I was in Baghdad before she was in her dad's bag. And he's like, no, no, you can't. That's hilarious. Fred G. G. Sanford. That's That's some true wisdom right there, man. (laughs) Yeah, from your theology major, you're welcome. Yeah, <laughs> I like that. <laughs> so, so Dave, so you felt like I mean, we've had the conversation before, but um, you felt like doing the documentary was a, a part of the healing process for you. It was, and it, it the cool part. It was, it just had nothing to do with me. I, um, I, I don't think like that. You know, don't come unless they're supposed to. In my life, I'm not a go getter. They told me I was an A type in the in the unit. I'm thinking maybe B plus, but like, you know, <laughs> I'm not a. Um, I just I like to read and and write. Um, so that happened. It, it was definitely what I felt bad. About. Not bad, but I wish more guys could have that, and and men and women could experience that. They need that. It was, I mean, John Dixon was. He went from like near death to just a different man in that night that we were there. That was such an experience and not just the movie and seeing yourself. That was surreal enough, but it was the people who I'm still friends with, you know, the, uh, the, uh, editor, Kevin Filippini and the, uh, Phil Diab, the video guy, like uh, we still talk and, uh, just to see that they're real people. And then, I think I told you that, John, but I, AJ uh, Buckley from SEAL Team was at the premiere of the movie. He's yeah. like, hey, come on out to the show SEAL Team. And then I, well, okay, so I got there and, you know, I'm me just mixing it up with the cast out there and they're asking me if they're looking real and stuff and, you know, and they're acting. And I, <laughs> it's the coolest experience. My wife and I went out and did a little part as an extra. It was, um, you know, and I had a moment out there where it was like I got choked up and I wanted to leave because I didn't want them to see me get emotional. It was the scene they were filming that there was an RPG being shot. It looked exactly like something I had been in, and uh, I just stuck with it. You know, it was like I stayed there and just had a moment with all those guys. It was, it was just God doing for me what I could never do for myself. And um, you know the the show SEAL Team is kind of interesting dynamic because I've never seen it, but it's a show I'm assuming where they kind of follow the SEALs' lives as far as deployment and home stuff, pretty much. Yeah. So it's it's interesting because yeah. it's a show about SEALs, but all of the the like the technical advisors behind it are all former <laughs> unit guys. It's like how'd that happen? <laughs> <laughs> Good question. I don't know. That's uh, 
where, yeah, how and why did that happen? I don't know, but um, they're having fun out there, and uh, there's some seals involved too. And it's, you know, we all work together. We, there's no bad blood between, well, not really, but like um, <laughs> kind of friendly seals and unit. It's yeah, it's it's no big deal. Like we we all make mistakes. Um, we had good years and bad years, and um, so I don't know. They're uh, they're. I didn't watch the show after the uh, the first season, and not because I don't like it. I just don't watch much TV at all. But uh, I hope it keeps going because I like residual checks. Yeah. <laughs> um. So you know, you you spoke about after you kind of left the operational side, had you had done some of the language stuff. I'd asked you about Egypt a couple of weeks ago, I think. And you were kind of giving me some pointers. Can we just talk a little bit about your Egypt experience and, and whatever you can as far as like the language stuff? Before we hear back from Dave regarding Egypt and language training, I want to give a quick thank you to our sponsors for this episode. In today's age, it can be hard to find the time to sit down and learn more. A lot of people work and have a side gig or work two jobs or they have to take care of the family when they get home from work. So you feel like you don't have enough time to sit down and relax and read and develop yourself. Well, there's an app that I highly recommend. It's called Blinkist. Blinkist is the only app that takes the best key takeaways, the need to know information from thousands of nonfiction books, and it basically condenses them down into just 15 minutes so you can read it or you can listen to it. Blinkist is made for people like you who want to get the main talking points of the book quickly without having to sit and spend the time reading the entire book. With the audio feature, Blinkist makes it so easy you can finish four books in a day. Eight million people are using Blinkist right now, and it has a massive and growing library from self-help, business, health, and to history books. I like Blinkist because in less than 15 minutes, I feel like I have a better and more well-informed opinion on the topic. I use Blinkist when I'm making breakfast in the morning before I start my day, or when I'm ending my day at night, I like to read and learn, and I think that helps me fall asleep. I've read and listened to these books, and I highly recommend you check them out. The first book is The 4-Hour Workweek by Tim Ferriss. The second book is called Factfulness, 10 Reasons We're Wrong About the World and Why Things Are Better Than You Think by Von Harris Rosling, Ola Rosling, Anna Rosling Runland. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash recon to start your free seven-day trial. That's Blinkist spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash recon to start your free seven-day trial. Before we get back with Dave, I want to talk to you about Duke Cannon. So if I'm thinking about a bar of soap, I'm not thinking about anything patriotic. But Duke Cannon has superior quality grooming goods, and it's for hardworking men, and it just so happens that it's tested by soldiers. They partner with the active duty military and help develop these ideas and review some of their products. If it doesn't meet the high standards, it just doesn't happen. Now, I have a bunch of their products. I have their big-ass brick of soap. I have some of the beard stuff and some of the hair products. And I can assure you that there's a very high quality and... Most importantly, why I support Duke Cannon is because they give back to the men and women serving our country. So portions of the proceeds that they do generate goes directly to veteran causes. 
So if you're using Duke Cannon's Big Ass Brick of Soap or Premium Hair Goods and it gives you that news anchor thick hair or your beard and shaving goods that help put your best face forward, don't be surprised if you start singing the national anthem. No, seriously, visit DukeCannon.com right now and get 15% off your first order with the promo code RECON. That's R-E-C-O-N. And they're offering free shipping on orders over $35. Now let's get back to Dave Nielsen as he talks about his time in the language program at the Special Missions Unit and some of the time that he spent in Egypt during the Arab Spring. I was a language student of Arabic and then a facilitator, so I worked in the schoolhouse just helping students um, to go through the course and setting up training in foreign countries. So I happened to be in Egypt in 2011, right during or right around the Arab Spring. I don't know, but uh, I could check my journals, but um, it was, it was during the Arab Spring 2011 and I was in a, at a market and I was talking to just a shopkeeper and we were having coffee and, you know, the reason I would never do things like that before, I, only, I always, you know, I would only go to places like that if I had a gun. I learned some language and culture. And uh, Arabs get real animated when they talk and they argue and all that. That's just their culture. They're not necessarily wanting to cut your head off. They might be, but um, this guy wasn't. So I just, we, we talked and... Um, this mob came around the, the corner. I, I heard, you know, shouting and screaming and I didn't think much of it, but we were in Cairo in this market and he just got a look on his face that let me know that something wasn't right. And since he and I had been talking about family and this and that, he considered me a friend. Um, he said, you should come back in my shop. He took me to the back room and it, um, I didn't really get it all, but this mob passed through, it got louder, and I realized that he was protecting me because that's his obligation. Um, and I don't know, five or ten minutes passed, and they were gone, and he let me out. And uh, I, who knows what would have happened, but I know that, uh, you know, just trying to open my mind and, uh, okay, he's a Muslim. He, he might have just saved my life, <laughs> you know, and... I don't know, just, uh, it was, it was an experience. Yeah. That, I mean, during that whole time, that whole region, like North Africa and other parts of the Middle East, it was, it was getting rough. And then I think that's right when, um, Syria started to really kick off. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, uh, that's about when I started to unplug from everything. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, I just pray for our, our people now. Like I, uh, I still live about an hour from Bragg. So I see, you know, people now and then, um, and, uh, I don't even know much what's going on, but, um, I don't know. I hope our country can, can truly open its mind, not just open its mind to the flavor of the day, but you know, to the fact that we've been around a couple hundred years and everybody else has been around a couple thousand years or these civilizations, not that they're better or worse. It's nothing like that. It's just like, Hey man, just, you know, look at value experience. We don't seem to value experience that much. 
with people and we should. Yeah, that speaks to a lot, I think, um, especially from like, you know, like what we were talking about earlier with subject matter experts and, you know, kind of knowing the lay of the land and the territories. Like we kind of superimpose our thoughts and ideals sometimes. It's like, hey, guys, we haven't been around that long. <laughs> like, you know, we don't, yeah. you know, these, these these countries have been going at it and, you know, and, and, and fighting and having these experiences for thousands of years. And then yeah. you come in and you try to tell them, you know, like what's, you know, hey, man, you know, two plus two equals five. Like, you know, like, you know, and they're yeah. just staring at us like, hey, we've been going at it for forever, guys. Like, you're going to try and dictate to us how we need to conduct business? I don't think so. Yeah. And it takes, you know, so that's our, and by our, I mean, conservative typical military person today i'll just speak for myself um conservative guy like that's on me to learn that lesson and i did in egypt in cairo like okay big lesson learned um wow i think i want to learn more language and culture and um and then i realized the hard part was like with ptsd with dealing with people is in america and as we talked about just a while ago was was the people here who don't know but want to tell you that's what really was the issue man and uh i don't know i don't know how to fix that and i don't want to even try but <laughs> yeah i mean it's got to be difficult on some level having that having that and all i mean yeah i even felt it and like i said i was just in a regular grunt unit but i i think having that Stand, having that n level of expertise that you had going from such a high level, a hundred miles an hour, and all of a sudden, you know, being back here zero miles an hour and, you know, and stepping into these classrooms and then, you know, whether it be a 19 year old student or whoever, not understanding, not even trying to understand your viewpoint when you've had a real world lesson for I mean, how many years, you know, in the military at a very high level and coming into them and explaining to them what you've known for all this time and you've seen it, it's right there in front of you and you can explain it and yet still not believing that person. It's just, it's wild to me. It's unfathomable. Yeah. It is, it is. And that, that's why I appreciate you guys because you are educated and, and, doing the hard work of, of getting these truths over. And it's not, but thinking about that word educated, what does that typically mean to people? A four, six, eight year degree? No, not necessarily. I mean, that, that can be, that's what I'm doing now at 48 years old. I'm, I'll get my bachelor's next year. Cool. I'm no more educated now than I was five years ago. It's just, it's all of that combined. And um, that's what we need to, open up to i guess well yeah i think it's also like it's it's what you as a person pursue you know um because you know some people let's say you know you get your degree you know your family you know you got to go to school you get your degree you get your job um but then after you you get out of school you know you you browse the internet and and you know whatever you're into whatever kind of music you're into and then you just kind of stay in that 
I'm just going to watch some, you know, some sitcoms after work and go to the movies occasionally. And, and, and that's your space and you deal with your family, your friends. But also, you know, I feel like, you know, once you're done with school, you should still pursue to learn and, and understand and explore yeah. different things, you know. And, and I think uh, that's really the difference, right. uh, in, in my opinion. Man, I think it's stepping Absolutely. out stepping out into those cultures, Dave, is, is so important. I mean, like you saw it more than both of us, obviously, being in, immersed in these different cultures. But, I mean, I even got it when I was in Iraq, not only in Iraq, but just when I was just in England, you know, for a few weeks. Yeah, just and, traveling, yeah. Yeah, just traveling, just covering a few of these British soldiers for the project and getting, like, there were several things I said where guys would kind of look at me and be like, oh, yeah, we don't we don't do that over here, you know, or we don't say that over here, things like that. Like things that like, just, we think, you know, I coming in as American, you know, think that it's my understanding of a certain subject. And so therefore that's right. And I know what's right. But then stepping back and listening to them, you know, say, Hey, that's not how things are done over here. Like, and in a country that is, actually relatively pretty close to our culture you know is still very different yeah. you know that education and the learning you can take from those experiences is so profound and so important yeah. but a lot of people never get that practical learning they just want to read their book or stay on facebook right. and read the different forums and then they go and try to explain a whole life's experience to someone who's done it yeah, and I, I think just yeah. just getting out there, you know, like you said, just talking to different people, um, different cultures, different religions, different viewpoints, and you just see, you learn stuff just just from having those conversations, you know. You, um, and John, you gain respect. Of course, respect of course. Is, you gain respect. That's so important, man. Is like the ability to respect each other. Right. I mean, I think that's why. Yeah. So many of these issues have sprung up nowadays. Is because there's just no, no there's respect no respect. Well, that's the thing, and it's like um, I was in um, I was in Paris, and then I was in in Athens, and and in Rome at, at different periods. But in all of those places, like I crossed paths with like refugees from Syria and Iraq, you know, and it's just like. Mm. You, in America, you don't see it that much, but you see it on the news if you pay attention to that kind of thing. And then it's just a little surreal when you see it in person. And like, you know, I, I was talking to this guy, um, for, he was from somewhere in Africa, I forget where, but he was telling me, you know, he escaped the civil war and and, um, and now he's in Greece and Athens. And all he does is at, at night in this town square, they get their drums and they're playing like the traditional music. People leave them money and, and they try and sell you like little wristbands they're kind of stuck in a really bad situation because you escaped a, a, a terrible war in your home country and now you're in a place where you can't legally work. So you're kind of just struggling. So then when when you here in the States, we're kind of removed from that. There's all type of personalities and people giving their opinions on TV and the internet or whatever. And then you see people talking about refugees and, and but but talking about them with like a hatred for them. And then when you mm. actually see it, you're like, how could you hate this person gone through some really yeah. traumatic and uh, profound experiences and they're just trying to survive like anyone else. And it's just, and yeah. I would have never had that experience had I never been there and, and spoke to the guy for 25 minutes in, in, the, in the middle of the town right. square in, in, in Athens, you know? So it's just, 
I, I think travel would help break down some of what people think they feel about people. Yeah, we've definitely got the sheep giving order to the shepherds. Not that there even needs to be shepherds, but there does. But um, anyways, like, and, but you don't have to leave the country. I Here's an example. I was accused of racism in an econ class last semester by a black woman, which I have no idea. Because I put down Obama's cash for clunkers program in a, in a econ 101 class, like I criticized this program and therefore criticized her. And I said, ma'am, I grew up in Detroit. I'm from Detroit. My stepdad was black. Okay. I, for 26 years, my mother was married to a black man in Detroit, like in the city. You know, I went <laughs> back and forth from the suburbs to the city. I'm talking like real black culture. <laughs> and so I know. And uh, so I think you can lose respect if you don't stand up. For anything and just roll over. Okay. Oh, you're right. I can't put down President Obama because I might offend everybody. Right. Mm, right. Yeah. Yeah. Give me a break. Give me a break. And that's There's part that. of a macrocosmic thing, too. It's like what you're talking about, Dave, is like my dad kind of had that same experience. I talked about that in one of my classes. So, well, what about this? What about my, you know, my dad's from Gary, Indiana, and like he grew up, you know, pretty persecuted like beat up on you know like he got it from mm. you know the other side he, he was you know he was he beat up by um you know a lot of black people in the name of racism you know as a kid growing up but he yeah. never held it against them them at all like when he went into the air force his best friends were african-american like it was not a big deal yeah. well, how, you know how like, ironic is that like they're they're beating him up because he's white and he's racist it's just people are so ridiculous <laughs> Just, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. It's like I stepped yeah. into this classroom and they tell me, oh, well, that's not how majority of culture that's that. Well, I because I said, well, where was my dad's white privilege in that setting? And they were like, well, that's not yeah. what white privilege is. White privilege is a macrocosmic <laughs> effect on a universal scale. And I was just like, OK, I can't even know. Well, and I'd have no argument whatsoever. You, know, like, it, you remember, Tim, when I think it was. The first episode that you were co-hosting on was with Tyler Gray, right? Remember that? Yeah. yeah. Uh, Dave, mm -hmm. do you, you know yeah. Tyler? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so... He's the producer out there, yeah. Yeah, so exactly right. So we... um, And I think we touched on that, and then we talked about, like, people go through all the... Like, like we're at this point, and we, I feel like we've gotten, like, so soft. So it's like... Everything is so peaceful that we worry about stupid things like that. Whereas, yeah, yeah. and everyone's so removed from the wars that are being fought today. And I, and this is what we touched on when, when Tyler was on. It was like back in the day, life was harder, so people didn't have time to worry about this like really trivial kind of yeah. you know little stupid details. Hard times make hard men. Well, and and then, but it's like a cycle, yeah. right? So it's like. Go through right. really hard times, then there's a period of peace and, and prosperity, and then you go through that, and you go through that, and then people get soft, and then we start, problems become something all different altogether, and then you go back to that war period, and it's just like a cycle, and it's like, people people don't understand it. Like, in, in other countries, they don't have time to think about being offended by something that's not even offensive. It's just like a, a different mindset. Right. And, I, and I think people just don't, 
like we live in a bubble in America and people don't understand that. Yeah, but there's a whole other issue where our warrior culture, like guys like Dave and, you know, and, and other warriors are experiencing that. And then nobody else is experiencing that. Right. Everybody else is just kind of in that bubble. So that warrior culture is getting hard and they're getting toughened up and they're gaining all these new experiences. And they, you know, they come back to America and it's like why are you bitching about this? You know, your cell phone, like right. it's not that big of a deal, man. But then the other culture, the rest of our culture, the 99% is not experiencing those hardships and we'll probably never have to deal right. with those hardships. So, whereas during world war two, you know, and I'm don't know, John, if you've seen this latest story on Woody Williams that I did, but these guys can't even fathom some of the things that we complain about, of course. you know, like when, like Woody would just like stare at me blank. But like I, I asked Woody, and you'll see it coming up in one of the questions. Like, Woody, what do you, you know, what do you think about us now, our culture now, and how things are going? And he goes, Tim, I, if I told you I was living on an alien planet, I just feel like I'm living on an alien planet. Yeah. Like I can't even, I don't even want to speak negatively because even speaking negatively doesn't, um doesn't take hold of how frustrated I am well, they, as to where we're at. I feel like, like their conflict with what they went through in World War II, World War One, and World War II. I mean, and, and anyone mm-hmm. who's been to war, but I mean, like, just that time period, it's, the the concept, the stakes were so high, for, and not just for the guys who were there, it's for the what happens if they lose. Then the world, well, the world is completely point. different. And it's like, and, and we, we touched on this before, Tim, it's like, when the Spartans went to war, when they came back home, they were the front lines were only so far away from where they lived. And so everyone appreciated it more. So then when, when they come back from war, people are supporting them genuinely because they really appreciate the fact that they're keeping the wolves at bay, so to speak. Well, that was the point I was getting to was and saying what Woody was talking about was Dude, they, everybody, it wasn't like the Daves going overseas, getting into direct action, going on 9, 10 deployments, coming back, and then everybody else is like, whoa, where were you at, Dave? What have you been doing for the past 20 years? You know, whatever, like, you know, totally. So, oh, hey, yeah. there's actually wars going on over right. there right now. It was like our whole culture was experiencing a global conflict in which we all had to sacrifice something, right? So we get we go straight from the Great Depression into this huge, you know, this huge fiery furnace of warfare where everybody's having to sacrifice some part of their lives, whether it's giving up scrap metal for bullets or, you know, women stepping up into the service shops and doing an incredible job at serving the men overseas who are fighting. And all this culture just comes together for this one cause. I mean, that, you know, obviously you don't want to see a conflict like that on that scale ever again. But, man, you want to talk about camaraderie? Even 9-11, like, I miss that even. I miss people being able to have a discussion on a level where, hey, we don't all have to agree, but we are working for Mm -hmm. the greater truth and greater principle of freedom and liberty and holding those things evidently and knowing that those are the important things that we need to fight for instead of you know, squabbling and fighting to a point now where we got one side so far removed from the other that it's like they can't come to an agreement because they have completely different ideologies in a lot of ways, you know? That's, yeah, that's well said, Tim. And I, 
um, maybe the lesson, yeah, I'm always trying to look for the lesson in things, the biblical studies student, but is that, you know, it's like God's showing us how good it can be in the forties and fifties, even in when, a, when the more is at stake and the war is bloodier and nastier and, um, but yet we're cohesive. And, and as opposed to now where we're arguing over nothing, um, I think, and, um, and don't have a war and, and creating problems and finding <laughs> ways to be offended. So John, I don't know if you, you saw can my, have it either way. I don't know if you saw my post yesterday, John, but to what Dave's saying right now is like, I posted this picture of Woody laughing really hard and talking about the message of hope being something that we needed more of in our world. But one of our most decorated warriors, the last living Medal of Honor recipient from the Marine Corps from World War II, he's able, he's he laughs almost more than anyone I've ever met. For him to go through what he went through on Iwo Jima and, you know, to, to see the levels of horror on Guam as well, and to have a positive outlook and love life as much as those men do, it's like, man, that sh hope springs eternal right there. And I know it's not as easy as mm. just accepting that. Obviously, Dave, you've experienced like the hardships of coming back and, you know, and knowing that, hey, man, there are a lot of things I have to work through. But that message of hope, I feel like, should transcend all cultures, yeah. all generations, just to yeah. be able to see that somebody can go through something that terrible and still have such a positive outlook on life, I think is really powerful. Hey man, I doubt Woody just came back and everything was great. Like he worked no, it too wasn't. and processed it all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it took him a while. I mean, it, it, he said that. I mean, he, he was he was yeah. straight up about coming back and, and having some of those difficulties. And he said one of the best things was that everybody felt like they had fought for one single cause and everybody was in agreement, the country was in agreement. They knew they had to do what they did, and they came back, and it was like, okay, nose back to the grindstone, get back to work. Everybody's fought, pretty much fought in World War II. Nobody's bragging about it because everybody's had their own hardships overseas. And he even said things like Iwo Jima just wasn't a thing, man. Like, we, like mm. you came back to said like Iwo Jima, and somebody would be like, cool, I got shot down over Italy. Or cool, I fought in the Battle of the Bulge. Right, or, you know, right. there was no... Right. There was no bragging points, you know, there was like, mm -hmm. we just did what we had to do. We, we conserved yeah. our freedom and we got back to work. And he said, mentally, that was very healing. But even then, mm. Woody's brother still cracked up and died at the age of 36, pretty much from wow. psychological issues. Like he, people didn't know how to treat him. So he just, you know, he came back from the battle of the bulge um, and had gotten shot a few times. I think he got shot like eight or nine times um, in one moment. And he came back to the States after that, after being shot up. And Woody just said, Tim, the difference between getting over it and moving on and not is life and death. Yeah. It really is because my brother died at 36 and I'm still here at 95, 96 years old. You know, like it's, That's I mean, true. he. It's, it's really, he's like, my brother just couldn't, he couldn't, he was still over there in his own head being shot and he right. was living that every single day and he just could not get past that. And because he couldn't, he said, I'm 36, they just didn't know. And also the medicine not being available, the help, the therapy, 
you know, kind of seeing that as a weakness as well back then, that hurt too, you know, the, the whole idea of PTSD hadn't really been formulated, you know, so, man, that was yeah. a tough time. World War One ended 100 years ago last November. The wild. I mean, that's yesterday. We are, we are infantile in our history, but they were, I think it was Britain and Canada were putting soldiers to death Yes. For desertion, yeah. when what it was was PTSD yes. or TBI, right. they were shell shocked and wandering around aimlessly. Hundred years ago. Yep. Dan Carlin's hardcore history. Yeah, he does talked a about really that. Yep. good job of talking about how those guys were treated. You know, I think it was called what? What did they call it then? Battle battlefield fatigue or shell shock? Right. Battlefield fatigue was World War II. Shell shock, and like it was treated as like a soldier's guy could have. Yeah. yeah, soldier's heart. Like a guy could have fought in. 10 battles and been and you know behaved with the most courage and honor and then he cracks up on battle number 11 and they are yeah. like oh he's become a coward and weak and so they just killed him yeah like disposed of him or, or even just like even just being banged up next to a huge artillery strike or something like that and you just literally don't know what's happening but your brain just got uh, jacked up a little bit and guys are just like wandering away because they don't know what's going on, and dudes are shooting them, thinking they're deserting. I mean, that's kind of crazy. <laughs> Wild. Yeah. Or, or you come home from one of those rotations, and um, you know the, the sheriff comes and takes your guns from you because you might do something because you need to be restrained. And these local laws are just—you know—that's happened to me and many of my friends many times. And uh, wow, you know, just. Uh, so you're telling law, me that even everything. now there's a very big, you know, there's a very big gap in the understanding of what that is. Yeah, they don't what want that's to. Like. Yeah, people. My wife and I worked for uh, Mission 22 for a year. Um, we had to stop; it just wore us out. But we were going to Southern Pines town meetings and all that, and trying to give them, you know, a work of art that people would create together and. It just got to where the garden club, they didn't want to, in their words, destroy the tranquil ambiance with with a statue of a bronze horse, you know, to represent the 22 troops killing themselves every day. Tastefully oh, done, you know. So we just walked, we were like, fine, see you guys later. And there was like one good politician on their board that resigned the next day, like he saw our point and... You know, so you, we tried, and people don't want to hear it. Then, all right. <laughs> you know, there were some shocking similarities in the cultures of you know, even coming back from a global conflict like that, John. And I remember in World War One. You saw? Did you see Peter Jackson's film? Uh, either of y'all? No, I did not. I, I'm, I'm they aware. They shall of not it. grow old. I want to. Yeah, I, I saw. It was absolutely in, amazing. Like. I mean, I, I teared up a few times during it. It just brought everything to life to where you really felt like, okay, I really understand World War One now. Like, I've these guys, these are humans, you know, like they're yeah. real men yeah. that fought a hundred years ago. And you see it; it's just mind blowing. But they talk about one of the in at the end. They kind of show the guys coming back, and they talk about the internal struggles of standing and you know of people not understanding them and staring at them when they're wounded and treating them as if they have weakness because 
they were hurt or, you know, them coming back and being seen as like, you know, as, as, um, vagrants because they're struggling to get a job when they come back from the war and things. This, this was a British guy talking about returning to England and how he was treated. And he said he was, you know, in the quotes, he said he was treated horribly. He said, I, I felt like I was no longer a part of the British culture and I felt they, they had demonized me when I got back. And many of my brothers felt the same. It's pretty bad now. I mean, a, a lot of British soldiers who served in Iraq and Afghanistan, some of them are being prosecuted by the British government. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, we had, um, uh, who was talking about it? Uh, Gez, Gez, right? Right, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So they they still have an issue with that over there. It's it's, it's oh, really I mean, a shame. Every one of those guys, I've I interviewed four or five while I was over in England for the Veterans Project, and every one of them complained about. Every one of them had done multiple tours to Iraq and Afghanistan, and they said they lived every day with the fear of that shadow hanging over their head that they might be brought back into court yeah. because it had happened to their buddies. They were brought back on war crimes charges three and four times. Hold on. I, I think Dave got cut off. Hold on. Okay. John, you there? Yep. Got your back. Oh, sorry about that. No, no. Uh, all good. So, Dave, when you... D- Dave got cut off real quick, so I had to call him back. But, Dave, when when you were transitioning out of the operational side, were some of the injuries that you've gotten over the years a part of that decision? They were. I, I knew... I mean, the headaches were the biggest thing. I was a breacher for... Uh, years and years and years and I loved that job I wish I could still I always say I I wish I could do 20 minutes from infill to exfil <laughs> it was my favorite part um but the uh the thing is you know we're wearing ceramic plates on our chest most explosive injuries affect the lungs um that's how people you know realize that they're hurt because <laughs> they can't breathe we have ceramic plates that attenuate the explosive blast, but our brain is sucking it up. You guys know all this probably, but, uh, you know, so these headaches, uh, eventually just get to where I can't go on anymore. So I, that's when I stepped out in about Oh nine went to language. So the, you would use your, your most serious injuries were from the, the years of the concussive blast and stuff like that, or were you wounded directly in combat? I wasn't uh, shot or fragged or anything like that. Um, no, I was. There was just uh, four or five instances where I was in a very confined space with cement, with uh, explosives going off that that did me in. So. Also, I wanted to ask. Your wife was at the unit. She worked with the dog. So how has that helped you post-military? I mean, it, it must be good to have 
anyone who's married or you have a partner, uh, you have a very close, intimate relationship with that person. But then to have had worked with them, I would imagine that that can help you in your healing process. Has that been the case? Yeah, and it's probably hard to quantify. Uh, she's sitting right here right now. She's awesome. She's. I tell her pretty often that she saved my life because I believe that. <clears throat> she, you know, and she started that... Uh, uh, soft canine memorial that's near the uh, that's at Fort Bragg um, she's the president of that um, so her being there and knowing you know and she was a, a vet tech she wasn't putting it on and going out and fighting but she saw enough to know that uh, that, that she just has that in, I don't even know what to call it but she has something that can really understand my issues, um, right. more than anybody else. So, and I am so blessed with that. And, uh, you know, she, Aaron Greider, who was Aaron's dog, hun? Bodie. Aaron Greider was killed in 2010. His dog's name was Bodie. Bodie wasn't killed then though, was he? Yeah. Bodie was injured in Afghanistan. Laura went over, I was in Israel learning Arabic, but, and we weren't married at the time, but she went over to, to bring the dog back. And, you know, Aaron Greider's body was on the plane. So she experienced that. Um, it's a big, big deal to go through something like that. And she did. And uh, she told that story at the last Memorial Day, I think. Or, um, and, uh, you know, that so so she experienced that as a support person that um, I couldn't ask for more. And uh, yeah, that, I mean, I think really I knew exactly what I needed. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. What's the, what is it like, you know, and, and I kind of asked about that earlier about the camaraderie, but between you and your wife and that element of like communication, um, you know, how has that, obviously that's grown a lot since you met, but was it just something she was initially able to handle pretty well, or is it something that she kind of grew into? It almost goes back to that what I said you could leave the unit and leave $800 on your desk and come back and you know it'll be there. It's like you know the kind of people that are there. And not that the world doesn't have these friendships. It does. You know, it, John, if you and I keep talking like we do and meet one day, we'll be, I'm sure we'll become friends. Yeah. And it just normally it takes years to establish those friendships where at the unit it's like you already know because you you know, like me and Jeff Teague's walked for a month together in mountains and and just suffered together. That's a big part of it is suffering together. Right. And um, so we just had that. Laura and I had that right off the bat, having worked together, and then we could just build on that, and it just it just happened a lot quicker, I think, than normal. Yeah, that's awesome, and it's probably like that. So that foundational element of trust is there yeah. within the relationship. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's something that a lot of guys never get, you know, like they, they come back. I've seen it on the grunt side, especially when some of those first interviews, John, that I was doing was you just saw some guys that have like never gotten that camaraderie back. And they really suffered because of that. I mean, it was present in my squad leader. I remember uh, my best friend for my unit, uh, Dave, he ended up taking his life a few years back but he was, mm. he was my best friend from my unit and i remember like he had just lost his sense of purpose 
Like he had been mm-hmm. in the Marines and then he'd been in the army and then, you know, so his first tour was in Somalia and then he'd done like five or six pumps to Iraq and, you know, mm-hmm. and, and he got out because of TBI and, you know, some other injuries and, um, you know, it was just too much for him to take. But I remember I got to sit in on a counseling session with him and just one of the things was that kept coming up with him was just, I just feel like I don't know what I want to do. I don't feel like I have any purpose. I I feel like, Mm -hmm. you know, and he had a wife and kids, but he just, he also wouldn't let them embrace him, you know, and and he lost that sense of team. And I guess he thought that like after the military that could never exist again, you know, because he spoke to, he, and, and, and I don't think I'm taking too many liberties by saying that because he told me that on many occasions of like, yeah. I feel like I lost my team, you know, and, and that camaraderie is gone. So it's a beautiful thing that you found that brother. And I'm, I'm happy for you that you've, that you found that team element again. I mean, and losing pepper and losing your friends and, you know, those are all painful losses, but when you gain a friendship and gain a relationship, mm-hmm. I mean, that's also an equally powerful thing. I appreciate it. And the way I keep that is to give it away. Uh, I just try to help people where I can. I go out to the, uh, to this men's treatment center near where I live. My friend runs it for alcohol and drug addiction. <clears throat> I go out there and I talk to these guys and, you know, about finding God and how I did it and they can do it too. And, uh, it helps me. It, it's kind of like a voluntary chaplain type thing and helps me so much to just be willing, at, <laughs> you know, to go out and throw it on the line and, listen to somebody, but it's not easy either. My God, this, there's still Rangers that call me and, um, they want to bitch. And I know, I know I, I can say this because I, I was this guy for, I mean, I did this for years. They just want to complain and, uh, they don't want to get better, you know? And that's, yeah. that's the hard part is getting to that point where you do want to get better. And that's the truth, man. And I saw that with uh, Carter, my friend, is like he didn't he didn't want to get better. You know, it was the constant mm-hmm. thing of week in and week out of the, you know, the drunk texts and, the you know, being upset. And, yeah. you know, it was constant and telling, hey, man, you, you need help. Like, you need to go get help. It's OK, bro. I'll, I'll be there if you need it. I can come, too. And no, I don't want you to come. And it's like, dude, I don't know what to do. Like, I don't know also how else I can help. Like. I want to be here yeah. for you, but if you don't go out and get the help yourself, you're going to end up becoming a victim. And he ended and he ended up that way, you know. And it's very sad yeah. when you see guys in that element, um, you know, not going out and sit and having the opportunities for that help, but not getting that help. You know, it's 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 a very sad thing. So I, I commend you on doing that. And John, I don't know if you felt this too, but. Man, isn't it such a beautiful thing? Like when you can step away and like give some of yourself. I've learned that some of the most selfless acts have been my happiest moments. Where it's like, like even with the Veterans oh, Project, sure. when I turn over when I turn over a project to somebody, like, and I turn that story over, and you know, like, you know, not to brag myself, but Woody, when I turned his story over, he's like, "This is the." one of the best photo essay that's ever been done on me, Tim. Like, I really like, this is really powerful for somebody to say that back to me and to like have that gratification of like turning somebody's over 
their story to them and them being happy and satisfied with that. Like, yeah. or turning over a beautiful photograph to somebody and having a client really happy with that. Right. Like, those moments of selflessness are, like, so powerful. They're, they give back more than anything else in life. Well, they do. You know? It's just, just even just from, like, doing a podcast and being able to talk to guys yeah. like Dave. And, um, and then especially when I, the first time I spoke to Dave, he was, like, talking about how it was really a struggle for him for so many years. And... Doing the documentary helped to start that that process of him starting to recover and feel better, and and just having those conversations from just from so many different people I've talked to. They after we're done, they might feel better, you know, and even something small like that is rewarding because just hearing, I mean, just from the progress that you've made, Dave, from the last time we spoke to now, do you feel like you've continued to kind of uh, feel better? At, at, by the day kind of thing. Yep, for sure. <laughs> and Dave, I mean, yeah. even within the even within the elements of the team, I'm sure that was one of the most powerful things about being a dog handler, right? And like being, you know, with Pepper and like, you know, give, having that gratification of seeing the dog do things right and learning that animal and becoming best friends with that animal and having that animal serve you and you serving them. I mean, that's that's there's i mean that's a gratifying process i'm sure i'm sure that's almost hard to explain yeah i can i what with me at the unit i i'm not a very social guy by nature so what, it was like pepper was just the perfect sort of liaison between me and these the other guys she just you know she'd go room to room and i'd hear them talking to her and next thing you know i'm talking to them and <laughs> she helped me transition from like this loner guy. Oh, I'll just sit over here in my room and read and not get to know anybody. And, um, it doesn't work like that. Like, so, you know, now I've got this 53 pound, like lap dog who would just <laughs> hang out with everybody and make them happier. Even after somebody dies. Um, and then when she died, my God, you want to talk about sadness in the house we were living at and, uh, in Baghdad and oh my goodness like I think there was people worse than me I yeah I heard she was uh oh go ahead no I just she was special and and you could say that so I was gonna say that John I I don't know if I ever told you the story but I had a buddy that was with um the was either the 101st or 82nd I can't remember who was a part of Operation Tapeworm which is like the attack on, you know, like Saddam's sons were killed in that battle. It was like a six hour firefight with Saddam's sons. And the unit was there, some contingency of the unit. And I heard a story from my buddy that one of their dogs got shot. And he said, that's pretty much what ended the battle right there. Like the, the guys from the unit like stormed yeah. the, the building after that, <laughs> that they just went absolute batshit, you know, at that point. And, you know, just like when their dog got hit, that was it. You know, they were like, oh, no, we're taking these guys out. Like, you know, that was that was really powerful story. That's a that's a 
true story, and that dog's name was Ivan. <laughs> he was the first oh, wow. dog killed. <laughs> hey, I finally connected the dots here, John. Yeah. I, finally, I could go back. <laughs> I could go back to Jeremy, who was in the 101st, 82nd. I, I can't remember who he was with, but he said, 100, "Man, 101st." 101st. He said, man, being alongside those guys was so cool and such an amazing experience, you know, because they were the only regular army unit that was there. But he said, like, it was such a cool experience. And like, you know, and seeing when their dog got hit, how crazy they went at that point. He was like, yeah. was like damn, I wish I had a dog. Like, <laughs> I, yeah. Like, wow. It's just he said I was he's like, everybody was scared at that point when their dog got hit. They were like, yeah. uh oh, don't mess with the unit. <laughs> Yeah, that's a tide turner. Like, yeah. <laughs> you can kill our men, and you can do whatever you want, but you can't kill our dogs, man. Like, yeah. Wow, that's now amazing. We're, now we're coming in, and everyone's gonna die. Yeah, that's amazing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow. So, um, Dave, do you and your wife have any dogs at home now? We do. We have a nine-year-old Labrador named Doug, who is retired from the unit. Oh, nice. He was the first single-purpose single, single purpose, uh, detection dog. He retired with Laura a few years ago, and he just burped right in my face. <laughs> he, just, he just ate dinner. He's a good boy. He's in the movie. You can see in the documentary, I'm out in the front yard playing with him for a second. Okay, right, right. It was a black black dog, right? Or... Yeah. Okay, right. Yep, that's him. Uh, so I, I was going to – I wanted to ask about that because I've had um, a couple of dog handlers on the show before. And then the guy who I talked specifically to about this, what I'm about to ask you, he was a Green Beret. And he was one of the first guys to have a dog when they when they implemented their program there. He he said something like, because I asked him, like, would he take the dog home if he could? And he said that he would love to, but he feels like if he wasn't home, he would be worried for his wife and kid with the dog there. Uh, is Is that something that a consideration for you when you want to bring a dog home from the unit? It depends on the dog, but uh, no dog that I knew, barring one or two, that, um, but that would go just with about any other normal dog anyways. Um, yeah, Laura just said a lot of times the uh, the dogs would be better friends with the wife than with the, the soldier, <laughs> you know, so... Uh, you know, and it goes back and forth with policy. Sometimes, you know, they change it and dogs don't go home. Sometimes they do. When I was there, I didn't get to take Pepper home, unfortunately, but um, she was supposed to retire. She was seven years old. She was kind of an older dog um, when she died, but she would have retired, um, but wasn't to be. So, yeah, have there now, been there's any... a... I'm sorry, Dave, go ahead. Uh, no, I was just going to well, say, have, have there been changes in policy since the whole thing with Mark? And, you know, obviously it was pretty unclear between the two departments, like the Rangers and then that Sheriff's Department, you know, handing the dog back. Have there been s some implemented changes as far as making sure that's a mandatory thing to where the guys do get their dogs back after that service? Because I can imagine that setting a type of fire within people where it's like dude we've got to change this like it, these guys have to get their dogs back you know or has there not have there not been any changes made i don't know that's a very good question i i had kind of the same thought 
when we were in LA for the movie premiere, um, you're, you're, you're just couldn't be more right. There does need to be something to address that. Um, the thing is, who's going to enforce it when you got, you know, I I don't want to talk about the 75th anymore. (laughs) I love them, (laughs) but my God, they make me mad sometimes. Like, um, that's where I grew up and, you know, I just, so I hope they get it right next time. Yeah. You You were in the range of a time before you went to the unit, but you were also, you were a sniper before you went to the unit, right? That's correct. Yeah, I went back in in '02, and I was yep. So I was a sniper in Vico One Seven Five, or headquarters, I guess. But then I went back to Vico Line Platoon. But uh, yep, for two years, and then went to selection in '04, made it. You were a part of the the Jessica Lynch situation, right? Were you? I was in when I was still in 175. I guess that was in 03. Yeah. And and were you there as a Yeah, sniper? and that uh I was. Yeah, my me and my teammate were there. Um and uh I think we've talked a little about it, John. I just I get so frustrated because because of what it became politically, you know, it became a right, right. political football. Oh, there was there was no gun fight, and you know they just forgot to talk about the nine American bodies that we dug up in shallow graves that were buried for three weeks, that we scooped out with our hands into body bags, got what we could get between throwing up and, uh, you know, there was like no mention of that, and uh, Jeez. that's where I just can't you know, take any more, like I'm going to draw the line when the, when the dead are disrespected. And, uh, <laughs> so gosh, I just hope that one day we can, um, I don't know, set the record straight, I guess, but who knows? Yeah. I mean, that's gotta be, uh, you know, the, the frustrations with that was that, was that related to the to the Rangers, or is that just how it was depicted in the media that it wasn't brought back, or the story wasn't really told? Rangers were fine. I mean, that was all we did our thing. You know, besides our commander, who was like sporting his uh, Ranger panties and PT T-shirt. Well, we're all in Mop Four, but we'll leave that for another time <laughs> for, for like two days. Oh, I couldn't believe that. Like, yeah, not that wow. Colonel Kershaw. Oops, I said his name. Um, <laughs> but uh, it was it was the media, and you know maybe it was just my uh, perception at the time. Maybe somebody did report it, and it just didn't make the big news. So I shouldn't. If I don't like to be, you know, judged as a knuckle dragger, um, you know, broad brush, then I shouldn't do the same to the mil- uh, the media. But you know, at the time it was, it was hard to take that they didn't realize what we had done there. And, and, you know, Doug with e-tools breaking and, you know, and, and scooping bodies out so that we could bring everything we could back to their families of these nine people who died. Um, yeah, I don't know what else to say about that. It's, it's a, that's a rough one. Yeah, I, I think I think a part, what I can remember 
at least like looking at it from the media perspective and things like that, I think, um, I mean, that was, I think that was pretty early on in the war. And I think they were just trying to have like some kind of, we have a victory in Iraq type of situation. So I think it became very political uh, once it was done. But so I wanted to ask about the foundation that your your wife runs. So can you talk a little bit about it? Like like what what the foundation does and, and, and what your wife's role is there? Sure, she's the president. I'm the vice president of the South Canine Memorial Foundation. She started it about seven years ago. My niece is the uh, treasurer, but um, it's it just uh, raises awareness to uh, the canines. You see it in the movie. It's that bronze statue done by Lena Torek. Right. Um, yeah, that was cool. And uh, it just raises awareness. Um, it, it's a pretty big draw every Memorial Day. Um, so Laura and Chuck Yeary. Chuck was the former president. He's an uh, amputee from the unit yeah. who's pretty well, well known. Um, he handed it over to, um, or walked, you know, left it. And uh, so, but we're going to hand it over to the museum soon, I think, because it's um, just, I don't know, we've done our thing. Laura got it going and uh, it. Uh, we do bricks for handlers who've lost a dog bricks or portraits like I have a uh, drawing of Pepper done by the artist who who was also the artist. Laura did a children's book called How I Became a Soft Canine Commando. It's based on Pepper's story. You can get it on Amazon. But uh, So they do bricks for um, handlers who've lost a dog or a photo or a picture. Um, that's pretty much it and raise awareness. And, and that's in North Carolina, right, where the statue is? Yeah, it's at the Infantry Museum on, in Fayetteville. The dog's looking right at Iron Mike. <laughs> yeah, like like he's watching out for him. It's pretty cool. That's amazing. Yeah, I said that's a really powerful moment when um, in the documentary when you're stepping up and find your dog's name. That was such a incredible... I can only imagine the feeling of you know, of actually doing that. Were some of these things, did they, did they have to kind of retake or was most of that done off of the cuff, you know, um, those moments in that documentary? It was all, I think they had planned it out. These guys were professional. Right. It was, <laughs> like they didn't let me know, which is good because I'm no actor. You know, it's like, I can be me sort of, but, uh, you know, so if it was, there was no retakes or anything like that. Um, I mean, we did sit and interview for like seven or eight hours. Um, but this director, I mean, she's just really good. She does uh, Ted talks and a couple other movies that were really well done. One about Rwanda. It's awesome. So they, yeah, they just, it, it was pretty seamless for, for Laura and I and, uh, yeah, heck of an experience. Um, and the the um, that documentary it was it was filmed and and worked on over a couple of years, right? It wasn't just like a quick. Um... Yeah, it took it took how long, Laura? Two years, three three years, all said and done, to 
to make. Um, yeah, it doesn't happen easily. And it's not like a big, we didn't, we don't get paid for that. You know, it's just, um, something you, that we did for the story, which is, I think more than anything, why I did it. Like it's not against people making money off their story, but for me, it was, the story was the important thing. Um, and were you, they just did a good job of it. Were you resistant to the idea first of all, or did you, did you step into it pretty quickly? Did you, when they explained it to you? Well, they approached us individually, but, um, I was, I was open to the possibility of doing it, especially for canine, because it's not about me. Like, I don't want to talk about me for, um, you know, an hour, but, um, so the fact that it was about pepper made, okay, we can talk about it. And then when I talked to the director and the producers and all that, they were just, and it only got better. The more people I met all the way up to like Channing Tatum and, uh, the HBO people were just, I mean, these people helped me get better. I don't know if they know that or not, but, but the fact that they cared, I mean, that, it's the last place I expected to find people that cared was in Hollywood. And that's where it happened for me. So that's awesome. Um, yeah. They just earned our respect and we slowly built this relationship and, you know, we still talk. <laughs> it's just, uh, <laughs> and one of the coolest things in my life. People don't really understanding the the understand the mental, the healing capacity of like telling yeah. your own story. And how important I get that from a lot of these guys with John, I'm sure you hear it too, you know, and just hosting a podcast is like, you know, from people being able to tell their story to you, there's this type of mental release, yeah. you know, and, and, and sometimes it's, it's difficult, but I've even had it where, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these world war two veterans, these battle hardened guys, after I've covered them for the project, they like pass like two or three weeks later, you know, like where, Mm. You know, people ask me, like, do you think they told their story? And then they were just like, I'm good to go. You know, I'd say, I don't, I could <laughs> never buy it. I don't know if I'm like killing them here, but I couldn't, I couldn't say that that's what ha is happening. But I do know that psychologically there is something very impactful about telling your story yeah. and being able to share with the right people, right? Like that's a huge element. Of yeah. Yeah. of telling your story, not to just not to the lights and cameras, and just having yeah. somebody ask you these generalized. Did you kill anybody? Yeah, yeah. Oh, it was a light killer. Yeah, did you seal? <laughs> did you paint your face in blood? How you know? Did you kill babies? It's like, funny you know, that you like, bring that up. As you're talking about that, like not the you know the uh, it, not that I'm laughing at guys getting better, but um, yeah. recently online I saw this video clip of this this. This young girl, I don't know if she was a high school student or like early on in her college life, and um, she was talking to this World War II veteran, and she has her mic, and she was being respectful. You know, I guess she just doesn't know much about it, and so she's asking him, "Oh, what'd you do over there?" And he's like, "Well," and you know, he's like, you know, he's dressed nice and he's he's speaking well, and he's like, "Well, uh, I had a rifle and I had a bayonet." And I killed a lot of bad people. And, and you just look at the, <laughs> the look on her face. She was like so shocked. <laughs> that reminds me. See, Maybe. that even that even happens to me being an experienced interviewer now. Like where I'll ask a guy and I go, 
Oh, that was like the dumbest question in the world. Like I'm asked. I remember when I was in New Mexico. I don't know if you remember that clip, John, but that guy who's the Hector, who is the World War II, Korea, and Vietnam veteran, and he was in the Marine Corps, the Army, and the Navy. And he, he was like, "Hey, so so, what was the best thing that the Marine Corps taught you?" And he like asked me. He was like, "What'd you say, young man?" Like he couldn't hear me very well because he's like 98, you know. And I was like, "What was the best?" thing that the marine corps taught you and he was like oh killing people <laughs> and i was like oh my gosh and of course the, my the followers of the project like thought it was amazing oh, they right, like right. loved every bit of him but I, it was like you know i felt so dumb in the moment <laughs> like i'm expecting some profound truth when i know these yeah. world war ii guys they're just honest and brutally so right, right. you know they don't they don't filter anything. There's no profound truths. There's no like deep understanding to what they did or philosophical mm. like, you know, learnings. It's always like, oh yeah, I had to kill people. Like, yeah, it's, that was, you know, it's just what we did. Yeah, like, yeah, like, like that moment was so. But 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 to go back to the to the mental release. I mean that that's been there for you, Dave, because you you got to tell your story to some people that really cared and really wanted to know about Pepper. And really wanted to know about how you know how that pup and you know impacted your life. Yeah, you know, because I <clears throat> made the decision to send her to send her that that second time when she went out and never came back. Nobody told me to do that. I I wanted somebody to say do it or don't do it, but it was like, well, what do you think? We got to get this guy. We're not leaving until we get this guy. I All slid right. down the mud. I was about to get shot. Um, this is what the dog's for. I made the decision. And, um, so yeah, it's, there's so much involved in all that. Um, maybe I'll get to the, maybe when I get older, like in my seventies or eighties, I'll get, I'll take the filter off and, uh, start to talk like that, you know, like, uh, <laughs> what was the best part? Oh, oh, just that's time. I shot that guy's brain out. Remember that right up from under his wife and just, I don't know, like maybe there is a, a need a need for that. I don't know. Well, I think, I, I, uh, I think there's something definitely, uh, powerful to that. But to your point, I don't know if we're there yet, Dave. <laughs> I don't know if we're, no, probably I, not. I don't know if our culture allows us to speak that oh, way. Yeah, you know, yeah, it's, yeah, you get... those older guys, they can no. say it, but if we, I mean, World yeah. War II guys, they could get away with murder when it comes to speech. I'll literally post the most. They'll say something. I'll be like, uh, do you want me to have that in the transcript? <laughs> yeah, like, sure. and they're like, oh, yeah, they're like, what's wrong with it? Why would man, you take it I don't, out? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then you post it and you're like expecting the whole world to come down and you and nobody says a single yeah. thing except like god bless that man yeah. for what he did yeah. even even the most you know even the most like progressive like you know left-leaning yeah. like not understanding of war they'll still be like god bless that man for what he did yeah. over there yeah. you know um, like I, I, yeah. I, I did a podcast with um with two uh with Tim with two uh from Rona Tactics and um yeah and he was a Green Beret for a long time, and, and he did some work over at the unit. But uh, two is Vietnamese, so I had and, and his family had escaped from South Vietnam after the government fell, and we pulled out. And then he grew up in the U.S. and he became a Green Beret, and you know he served in combat and everything. And um, are you talking about two lamb? Yeah, yeah, two lamb. Yeah, yeah. Okay, no. 
I had two on with me, and then we I had a um, my friend Mike Stahl, and Mike Stahl was a a uh, a team leader in Mac V Sog in Vietnam, and he had a couple of tours there. Talking and and Mike was was telling one story about how yeah you know, he was he's he wasn't like giving like like kind of like detailed just about the combat, but he was talking about what he was thinking and what he was going through during those, some of those moments when when they were like in the jungle and surrounded and stuff like that. And then he started talking about um, he started talking about uh, people calling them baby killers back home. And then he just went on a rant, and when he's ranting, and you know, and two is he's had a couple combat tours and and stuff like that. And while Mike's ranting, two is texting me like, you know, you can't put this out, right? <laughs> like, you cannot put. <laughs> So I had to cut it out. I was like, I can't like, but it was, it was just one of those moments where he was just being brutally honest and, um, you know, and it was just centered around like civilians getting killed in combat, um, and, and things like that. I mean, maybe one day I'll post it like, like, you know, like I've taken some things out of podcasts before, but it was, it was really like straightforward, you know? And, and he was just like, what it is. And I think, and these days, not so much with with warfighters, but with everyone else, just kind of that that kind of gets lost. Yeah, I know that's that's a that's a hard thing for me, man. I'm glad. I, maybe I should have had two on some of these projects with me, where I like <laughs> should have cut some of these parts out. But I post them sometimes, yeah. and I'm like posting it and cringing at the same time, or I'm like. Can we say this? Yeah, I mean, he was saying, <laughs> but he like, said some shit that I was like, yo, I cannot put this up, man. Like, like this is too yeah, hardcore. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had some World War II guys say stuff where I'm just like, all right. I'm like, you know, like, this will be in the public, right? It's going to be on the internet. Right. And it's going to be out there. No and they're like, given, yeah, yeah, sure, I don't give man. A shit, yeah. Bro. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, man. There's something beautifully refreshing about it yeah. though it's like this honesty you're like wow man that's pretty cool in a day of day and age of lynch mob you know the social media lynch mob it's kind of cool to see people that still don't care that much yeah so dave you, you you said that you guys every year you do you go um on memorial day you guys have an event at the the soft canine foundation yeah um yeah we go out there and have you guys ever heard of Rick Hogg? No, I haven't. He's a unit member, Doug Handler. He he spoke last year, but um, yeah, we do a thing out there. But we're like I said, we're handing it off to them, so they're uh, they might change it. The dog portion may be another day than Memorial Day, but um, they were on YouTube. I did it one year. Laura did it one year. Um, Chuck Yeary, Chris Moyer. Um, so. Oh, Chris Moyer, uh, Dutch, right? Yeah, there's. Yeah. yeah, there's always uh, lots of kids out there. The kids love the dogs. And we take <laughs> Doug. Um, he's losing it, but uh, sometimes we'll have him do a little search, um, a little demo. He uh, he selected Pepper, right? Oh gosh, Mike. Um, I <laughs> I guess. Is that I don't is know. that one of the cutout moments? 
Uh, no, it's fine. He, he may have, I don't know. He was there before I was. Um, so yeah, I mean, he, he probably did. Um, yeah, I, just, I think I remember I him telling me that. Yeah. Yeah. Shannon Krieger, Al, Al Miller. Yeah. And Pepper she almost got fired. She, on her first training mission, um, she was with a guy named Kelly Roby and she, you know, cause like dogs doing CQB, that wasn't a thing until we did it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, think about, uh, you're blowing the door off and then throwing a, a little bomb that makes nine bullet sounds. Everybody's screaming, hair's on fire. And then let's throw a dog in the mix, you know, like, <laughs> but we made it work. And, uh, but on Pepper's first training mission, she, she bit her own handler right in the junk and so they were going to fire her. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> she just, you know, like she got confused and she made a mistake, but they kept her. <laughs> in, uh, glad <laughs> oh yeah. She, she was definitely on probation for a while, but <laughs> she bit me once in the arm just like, cause she was mad at me. I mean, we were, we went out night after, you know, a few nights and she didn't get any bites and they get frustrated like people. And, you know, I'm having her work and do all this stuff, and she um, just lost patience and snapped at me. And um, you know, we had a moment like, <laughs> "Who's boss?" And <laughs> she was tough, man. <laughs> wow, that connection that you guys develop with those dogs though is really something that people don't quite understand. It's like um, unless you see it in person. Where you're dealing with them on a base. I mean, did you guys kind of effectively create that program of, you know, of CQB with the with the dogs where you were able to take them into that element? And I mean, how do you train for that? Going through that going through shoot houses just like you would in regular training environment or how does that work? Yeah, just <clears throat> piece by piece, you know, you just add a piece on slowly. First you get the obedience and with Pepper I would just uh spend time bonding with her outside of all the work stuff. And I think she appreciated that. Um, but yeah, you just add, add another piece on and then you're doing it at night and then you're doing it with explosive breaching. And then you go over to Iraq and hopefully they don't even know the difference. Um, and it just, just figure it out. You know, somebody gets the idea and then, well, it's pretty crazy, but let's try it. And, uh, and then, some things don't work and you take what does and that's what the unit is so good at and the rangers and seals everybody and i think a lot of people don't a lot of you know assumptions seals dogs like you know obviously they do live very hard lives but these dogs are treated extremely well right yeah laura's big on pointing that out to people that um want to talk about how they're fodder and just sacrificed and you know Hey, guys, if, if Pepper could go back and do it again, she wouldn't, you know, she would go again right now. Like they, they live for this. Um, they love to work. And, um, can you get that? Yeah. They, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's their whole life. I remember when I first got started training as a handler, I asked, uh, one of the dumber questions I've ever asked. We were, there's a guy in a bite suit and uh you know the dog bites the guy in the bite suit and i was like are you going to give her food or something as a reward like what 
what's the reward? And they're like, no, the bite is the reward. <laughs> That's all they want to do. They just it's like they're part of the team. They're hunting and it's their pack and that's security is you know like success with the team. So that's awesome. Wow. Yeah. And the, and there's some that, that that won't that won't some dogs that won't do they won't risk their life. They know, they know. Pepper knew she looked back at me, you know, and uh Mm-hmm. when she was selected they over in Belgium it was like a hole in the wall and like I think no other dog would do this in a dark room there's a hole a small hole in a wall like six feet up and Pepper would run and jump into this hole you know and like uh, most dogs wouldn't do that and the only thing that Pepper was afraid of was water she didn't you know we had a pool over there when we took Uday's house for him and uh she did not like to get in the pool, <laughs> um, you know, because they're all muscle. They can't swim too well. But right, yeah, wow. great, great animals. I mean, at least one person saved for every for every dog, dead dog brick in that memorial, and probably more. Wow, that's amazing. Yeah, I mean, I. I think that's important to get across to the listeners is just how much those dogs are warriors you know it's it really is a very it's not just an animal you know it's not just uh you know they are heroes you know they are saving human lives and it's a it's a huge element and i love that we're really putting a lot of um we're doing a better job at least of properly honoring those, those working dogs because they are really you guys' best friends, you know, and, and it's a, it's a really powerful process of bonding and then going to war together and then having that, you know, having that dog, you know, by your side responsible for a lot of life-saving measures. I mean, that's gotta be an incredibly, you know, I never got to experiencing that in a regular line unit we didn't have that element, but um, I always, you know, I always looked upon the dog handlers with a special admiration, you know, it's like, man, that's, that's cool. I wish I had a dog over here with me. That would be so, you know, comforting in a way, you know, it's like to have my animal here with me. I know it's a really powerful process. So I appreciate, we appreciate you yeah. doing that, you know, and, and we appreciate Pepper and, and uh, your sacrifice there. Thanks, guys. I know you do, and I uh, appreciate you caring enough to do all this um, and, and just be a part of the whole story. We really appreciate it. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. It, it was great talking to you again, Dave. And I appreciate you coming on and um, spending your afternoon with us. Um. Yeah, John and I have this Thanks, way of getting to talking, and things just go and go and go. And then before you know it, you're <laughs> like, oh, two and a half hours. Cool, man. <laughs> we put it's some cool. time it's, in. Uh, yeah, thank you, John and Tim. It's great to meet you and talk to you. And um, I thoroughly mean this. I appreciate you guys. For, you're doing a service. You are, and uh, the things you're, you know, the the bright, or the light bulb moments you're having, you know, about culture and society here in America. Those are important things, and you're doing the the heavy lifting of getting that word out to people. So we've got to at least try, and you guys are doing that. And I respect you and. Really appreciate you. In yonder valley, there flows sweet union.
Let us arise and drink our fill.